for those of you that are visiting us this morning, we are doing a series on this amazing book of Colossians. And Colossians really is a book about the supremacy of who Christ is. And we've been in the first chapter now for about um, eight weeks. And so uh, I'm going to just do a little recap of the last couple of weeks just to remind you where we are. But I'm going to talk to you this morning about, uh, out of verse 19 and 20, uh, 20 of this chapter, and about the reconciliation of all things in Christ. And this is an amazing, amazing thought for us to consider. The Scripture promises in Jesus, all things have been reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. It's an amazing, amazing thought. And so the, the Scripture we're going to look at is verse 19. But before we get there, just a quick recap, all right? Remember, there's a map that's going to come up behind me, and just to say, we are struggling with our computer, and so if, um, if it goes down halfway during the, speech, the, 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 the talk, and you don't see the stuff behind us, please just bear, it's not that Josh is doing a bad job, all right? The computer is crashing for some unknown reason, so I'm sorry about that, so just bear with us. But here we have, we have Colossia, you can see there in Asia Minor, which is now uh, modern-day Turkey. And uh, we know from Acts 28 that Paul, at the end of his life, when he's in prison in Rome, is visited by a number of people. He's writing letters to encourage the churches. And Epaphras comes to him. And Epaphras was a young man who was with Paul in Ephesus when Ephesus was planted. And we know that Paul spent three years teaching the church in Ephesus. And we think that it's most likely that Epaphras went perhaps back to his hometown of Colossia there, and he planted this church. And I said to you uh, in the last couple of weeks, it wasn't a very big city. Uh, it was a thriving city, and then, then the Roman officials decided to build a road around Colossia, and there was another uh, couple of cities called Lycra. It's not on the map, and they became major uh, centers, and, and uh, Colossia was kind of just a small town. And so Epaphras goes back to his hometown, and he preaches, and he plants his church. And then he comes back to Paul, and he says, I'm a bit concerned. There's some things happening in Colossia that I'd like you to help us with. And basically what there were things like um, this, that uh, people had come into the church, teachers who were saying, uh, Jesus is okay, Jesus is great, but what you really need is philosophy. You really need some Greek thinking to help you to, to kind of uh, add to what Jesus has done. And you really need to have an understanding of angels and how important angels are to help Jesus in his job to reconcile the world. And you really need to add a little bit of Jewish tradition to your life to experience the fullness of what Christ has done for you. And so Paul, in opposing these people, he writes this letter. He writes it in a friendly way. It's not a very strongly worded letter like his, church to, like his letter to the, the Galatians. And he simply tries to paint this picture of the magnificence and the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus. And what he essentially is saying through this letter to this church and what he's saying to all of us is lift up your eyes and get an idea, a picture, an understanding of the magnificence of who Jesus is. And when you do that, everything else comes into um, uh, focus in your life. That's really what Paul is doing. And so we spent the first uh, chapter looking at some of the things that he's been trying to say to these guys and to encourage them. And he's, he prays for, he's prayed for them. And then a couple of weeks uh, um, ago, Michael Hunter landed on the, the last verse of, of the chapter where he reminded us that Paul says, this is what I do. I, I preach, I proclaim Jesus that I might present all of you mature in Christ. That's what his 
His driving ambition is to preach Jesus in a way that it leads everyone to be mature in Christ. Helen reminded us last week that Jesus is the head of His church. And what that means, and that as the worldwide church, all of us that have ever believed put our faith in Jesus, we take our instruction from the head, who is Jesus. As much as I respect the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's not the head of the church. Neither is the Pope. Neither am, you, am I. Neither are you. There's only one head. His name is Jesus. He is the head of his church. He is directing all things. He is bringing all things together. All of us take our instruction from him. He's altogether lovely. He's altogether supreme. He's the first in everything. And this is what Paul is trying to do to get the Colossian church to focus their attention on Jesus. And I want to try, this is the reason that we are doing this with you, is to try and get you more than ever to focus your attention on Jesus and what He's done for you and how beautiful He is and how magnificent He is that He's reconciled all of creation to Himself and you included in that if you put your trust in Him and you can trust Him completely with your future. Brexit or no Brexit, it doesn't matter. Jesus is in control of the universe. He's in control of your life, your finances, your marriage, your hope to be married or to be single or whatever it is. Jesus is in control. If you just put your eyes on Him and learn to love Him with all of your heart, all things come into focus when you love Him like that. If you're visiting, I do get a little bit loud, all right? So, he has the, 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 having said that, let's look at this beautiful verse, verse 19. It says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So Jesus, I pray that you'd help me. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here. I thank you that you've been with us the moment we walked through the door, and that you don't leave us when we, when we walk out of the door. You're always with us. But thank you, Lord, when your church gathers, an amazing thing happens, that you speak to us in an extraordinary way through your word, through fellowship, through your Holy Spirit, through worship. And God, once again, we open our hearts to you this morning, and I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to communicate well, clearly, that people might leave knowing more of who you are, Jesus, having a greater focus, a greater passion, and a greater joy because of all you are and all that you've done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, over the Christmas period, we had a look at the incarnation, what it means for the fullness of Christ to have dwelt in a human being in the person of Jesus, who we celebrate coming at Christmas time in the form of a baby. So I'm not going to look at that, that verse today. I'm going to concentrate on the verse 20, which says that he's reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth and in heaven, and has made peace for us by the blood of his cross. And I'm going to look at those two things. So the first question to ask is this, why do we even need to talk about reconciliation? Why does God need to reconcile to himself all things? Well, the fact is that something's broken. The fact is that something's wrong. The fact is that there's a disharmony in the universe. The fact is that there's been a giant rupture that has taken place and dislocated our relationship with God and not only our relationship with God, but the Bible says everything in all creation has been dislocated and has been negatively affected because of sin in their relationship with the creator of every, of every good thing, the Father in heaven. 
And so Paul puts it plainly in, in Romans chapter 8, which we're going to read just now. And he kind of says in a nutshell, he says, there's no settled peace in this world. And what really marks humanity from the very beginning is um, hostility, is evil, and, and, and being out of relationship with God. From the very beginning, when sin entered the world, that has been the result of sin. And so Paul writes in, in, in Romans 8, and he says this, Verse 19, for the creation, notice the language, all of creation, the universe, everything. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and I, those that have put our faith in Christ. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption. Some, some translations say bondage to decay and obtain freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with, in the pains of childbirth. Ladies, you know what that's like, to groan in the pains of childbirth when you try to give birth to something. And here, the, Paul's language is the whole of creation is groaning like that for the sons of God to come and to restore all that, and Christ to restore all things to himself. And it says in verse um, 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves at the same time are groaning for God to come and reveal himself in all his fullness through Christ so that the whole world can be reconciled to him, the universe and everything that we see. Amen? That's what Paul is saying. And so ultimately, what Colossians is saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, he was certainly paying the, sin, the price for your sin and my sin and the consequences of sin eternally in the world. But more than that, he was totally crushing the head of Satan when he died on the cross. It wasn't just to achieve personal reconciliation for you and me. It was also that he was reconciling in that moment. He was reconciling the entire universe to himself. Everything that's ever been created, everything that we now see, those billions of galaxies, and there's a picture up there. Is there, Josh? There's a picture. Billions and billions and billions of stars, billions of galaxies, and you and I, those little individuals that you see, there's one person standing there. It's both of those. It's the one person, and it's all of the created universes, the millions of universes are being reconciled to him. The entire cosmos when Jesus died on the cross, he reconciled all of those things to himself. And it says the entire universe will be set free from bondage to decay. That things decay and are corrupt and will be restored to its glory. And the promise of Christianity is there's a new heaven and a new earth coming on that day. And you and I will reign as those who reign with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. All things will be restored to what they should have been at the beginning. Man, it's encouraging. Now, I do want to say something here that is a little aside, but it does need to be saved. Because this little phrase of God reconciling all things to himself has been misused in a number of ways since the early centuries of the church. And so I need to mention a guy called Origen. And you might not have heard of Origen. He's one of the church fathers. But you might have heard of a guy called Rob Bell. Anyone heard of Rob Bell? A book called Love Wins. Okay, anyway, we will, uh, you'll see where I'm going. But Origen was a great Christian thinker. 
He was born in around 185, and probably in Alexandria in Egypt, and he died in uh, Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, in about 254. He was a great thinker. He was one of the early Greek thinkers in the church. But over time, he started to say some things that didn't quite fit with what Paul and what the other apostles like John had said. And he believed in what is called universal salvation. So he said, ultimately, that actually all people are going to be saved. Because God is reconciling to himself all things. And he quoted this verse. And he said, actually, it doesn't really matter. All of us are going to be saved one day. And this is quite a fashionable, fashionable um, thought in our modern day world, actually. And that's why I wanted to quote Rob Bell. Because he wrote a book that's called Love Wins, which actually didn't say this explicitly. But implicitly, it is saying this very thing. That in the end, love wins. And it doesn't matter because all things are going to be called to Christ anyway. So in the end, love wins. And in our culture, people like that kind of thinking, don't they? In the end, love wins. In the end, all we need is to love each other, and that's going to be enough. And people who, who think like this don't like to talk about hell very much. Why? Because they say, well, you know, God is love. And so the logic is, if God is love, we can't possibly consider hell as part of God's character. Because God is loving. He's loving. So he can't possibly condemn anyone to a, to a separation from him in any way. He's love. And so love wins. And all we need to do is love each other, and that's enough. And we can have this kind of brotherhood of man. And as long as we are standing, people of faith stand against communism and, and stand against atheism, that's cool. We can do that together. And in the end, love wins. This is not the gospel. This is not what Jesus this makes the, the, the death of Jesus irrelevant if this is true. And so Origen was the first one to um, kind of think these things and write them down. And since that time, people have uh, said similar things, and it's a very popular culture uh, thing in our culture right now, um, that actually in the end, it doesn't really matter about the, the cross of Christ, because in the end, love wins anyway, and we're all going to be reconciled to God. I can't say a whole lot about that now because that's a, that's, a, that's a message for another day, but I can say this. It doesn't really square away at all with what Jesus says. If he, if, and that's very important to me. Well, what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus used lots of illustrations about the things of the future, and he said things like this. He said, on the last day, the sheep will be separated from the goats. He said, he said it like this. He said, in the last time, there will be a great wedding feast in heaven. And there will be guests that are invited and those that are not. Jesus, implicit to his ministry, made a point of saying, actually, there is a judgment that is coming, and you best respond to God in your life now, because there is a judgment that is coming. And so what our culture says is that, that there's a hierarchy in God, that his love trumps every other aspect of his character. So because God is loving, he can't possibly be angry with anyone because, uh, or angry with sin. Because God is loving, uh, we, we don't talk about God's holiness because kind of his holiness is trumped by his love. And so there's this kind of hierarchy in people's thinking that the most important thing about God is love and therefore everything else must come under that. And that is true in one, in, in, in one way. But simultaneously in God, He holds together love, justice, holiness, judgment. He holds all of those things together in, the, in His person, and He is consistent in all of those things all the time. It's not like He's totally loving and disregards His, his holiness, or He's totally loving so He doesn't talk about sin. Of course not. And so we have to understand that we can't, 
reconcile that kind of view with what the whole Bible says about God. And secondly, in, in, in relation to this verse that we're looking at um, today, uh, one of the things that Origen said, he said, that in the end, even fallen angels, even demons, even the devil himself will come to repentance one day. That's what Origen taught. And when he said that, the, the church father said, no, sorry, we, you are wrong. And, and, and it's not consistent even with Colossians chapter 2, because if you go to Colossians chapter 2, Paul speaks about, in verse uh, 15, he says that Jesus has dis disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Paul says here, Jesus, no, Jesus has triumphed over fallen angels. He's triumphed over powers and principalities. He's made a spectacle of them. He hasn't forgiven them. He's defeated them. By his death, he's defeated them. And you understand what the Bible teaches about fallen angels? That uh, Lucifer, Satan, was the most beautiful angel in all of heaven. And he led the worship in heaven. This is what the Bible says. He led the worship in heaven, and he, pride came into his heart. And he said, I can be like God. I want to be like God. I want the people to worship me, the most beautiful one, the, 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 the one who's leading worship in heaven. And a third of the angels, the Bible says, rebelled with him, and God threw them from heaven. And they, they are the, the ones that are fallen angels that um, at the moment rule in, in some ways in the world and, and uh, oppress people and are enemies of God. That's why this Bible, the Bible uses language of fallen angels, powers and principalities. That's what it's talking about. And so here in Colossians 2, Paul says quite clearly, he says, God has defeated the fallen angels. He's defeated powers and principalities in the person of Jesus on the cross, and he has forever dealt a death blow to them. He's not going to reconcile them to himself doesn't mean all things in that way. Are you with me? Am I making it clear? Or am I just confusing you? Okay? So what my point is, is that this verse 19 is saying that Jesus has paid the price for bringing total peace and unity to the entire world, either by defeating evil powers like He did on the cross, every fallen angel, every demon, everyone that rejects Him, He defeated on the cross, or by those that accept through faith what He's done. He brings peace to all in those two ways. Are you with me? That's what he says. And that is sure. And that's why Paul says, Christ in us is the hope of glory. That's what he's talking about. The hope of the fullness of the future. That is what he's talking about. And uh, Jesus is the hope of glory for you and for me. So that's the first thing I want to say. It means all things are being reconciled to himself. But in another way, it doesn't mean things that are fallen things that have been defeated those things are not being reconciled but everything else in the world and the universe is and that includes you if you put your faith in Jesus that's good news secondly Paul picks up in verse 20 on the language of the Old Testament he says Jesus has made peace for you man that is a wonderful thing Jesus has made peace for you he has made peace for me and this idea, the word peace, really picks up, you can go to the next slide, I think, uh, Josh, uh, picks up on the Old Testament word shalom. Have you heard that word, Hebrew word shalom? Shalom is used in terms of a greeting where people say peace with, be, be with you. But, 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 but it's much more than that in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, and this is what Paul is picking up on here. It means um, 
much more than that simple thing of greeting and, and giving peace to people in that way. It, it, it's a, a very deep thing of complete peace, a complete feeling of contentment, completeness, wholeness, well-being, harmony. That's what shalom means. And so what Paul is saying is actually that Jesus has bought that for you on the cross. Wholeness, completeness, a feeling of contentment and deep peace with yourself and with God is available to you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. His shalom, His peace that takes on the entire part of our lives is available because of the blood of Christ. And so Paul says that because of that, these Colossians can live free of fear, free of any spiritual fear, of any spiritual power, and free to live in a way that lives out those things of being whole and harmonious in our lives. I've said this before, but where I come from in Africa, where I was born, uh, they are those that fear the power of witchcraft. And it's amazing to me that in our Western culture, there's a fascination with witchcraft that is coming back into our culture through Wicca and other kind of um, uh, traditional pagan views of, of spirituality. And they, you can see it in all sorts of things that um, are on television. And, of course, this tries to make a distinction between good witches and bad witches. Have you noticed that? Good witches do good things, and bad witches do bad things. There's, there's white magic, white wicker, and there's black magic. Black and it's okay to kind of be involved with the white wicker, but not with the black wicker. Well, I want to just say to you, the Bible doesn't speak about uh, witchcraft in any way, in any way, in any positive way at all, ever. So don't be deceived, all right? It doesn't. And so Paul is saying to these guys, you don't have to fear any kind of power like that because Jesus is supreme over all that power. He has defeated it. In you. And, and if there are those of you that are here that might need some prayer because you've been exposed to some of that stuff, I want to just say over your life, you are free in Christ. You've got nothing to fear. Jesus is supreme of all. There are other people that subject themselves to what their star sign might say and fear of living under the, what their star sign might say or what some psychologist has said about their makeup. They fear that. This is determines who I am. I want to say to you, you are free in Christ. He is all sufficient for your life in every way. Every way. He is the Lord of all creation. He's defeated death. He's defeated fallen angels. He, uh, angels that are, 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 are th- those that are in heaven worship Him. He's defeated every demon, every fallen angel, everything that would try and tear you down and put fear into your heart. Jesus has defeated. He's supreme of the entire cosmos. He's reconciled everything to Himself in every way. And He lives in you by faith if you put your faith in Him. What good news. You have nothing to fear. Nothing. And so why is Paul saying this? Paul is saying this because they are, I'm going back to where I started, because there were those in the Colossian church that said, Jesus wasn't quite enough. You needed angels to help you in Jesus' work. There's all sorts of additional experiences you need. You needed to fast. You needed to observe Jewish lifestyle to really enter into the fullness of what God had for you. I can say so many things about that. Jesus is enough, but come and do our deliverance course. Jesus is enough, but what you really need is some psychology. Jesus is enough, but what you really need is our special prayer method 
And when you do use our special prayer method, you really will be set free. Now I say to you, Jesus is enough. Christ say, Paul says Jesus is enough. If you get a big picture of who Jesus is, throw a thing again. If you get a big picture of who Jesus is, He is enough for you in, in your entire, entire life. Everything you need is in Christ. Do people need some counseling? Yes, they do. Do people need some help? Yes, they do. But Jesus is the fullness of everything, and He is enough for you and me. That's what Paul says. He rejects that in, this, in the Colossian church. He says, don't be duped. Jesus is enough for you. And I would encourage you in the same way. Jesus doesn't need any help to set you free. You are free indeed. The old is gone and the new has come. You were in the kingdom of darkness and you are now in the kingdom of light. You never go back. He is enough for you. And all you need to do is love Him with all of your heart. Focus on Him. Let the voice of His Spirit guide you every moment of every day. And that is enough to liberate you into freedom fully in your life, in every way. Thank you. <laughs> Paul says all the other stuff is a distraction. It's good to fast. You don't have to fast for three weeks. It's a distraction. It's good to pray. You don't have to flagellate yourself like the monks did and wake up at four in the morning every day and prove to God how much you need to pray. Christ is enough. He hears your prayers in secret. Just pray when you're walking to work. Say, Jesus, I need your help. And he'll give you all the help you need. Christ is enough. One little word from Jesus, and he defeats every enemy. So here, I want to distill the, this verse 20 into four simple little things. I hope you will remember. Here it goes. First, reconciliation is a work of God. It all starts with God. The Bible is not a, sto a, a story about man's search for God. In the very, very first verse we read, in the beginning, God created. It all starts, the Christian, the Christian worldview is that everything starts from God. And that is what marks out every single other religion from Christianity. It's God's initiative from the very beginning in every way. And what verse 20 is saying is that we can't really disconnect verse 20 from verse 19. Because verse 19 says that God has taken the initiative in that the fullness of God has dwelt in a man called Jesus. And because the fullness of God has dwelt in this person called Jesus, we can know God fully. He's taken the initiative already in the person of Jesus. He is the one that can make peace with God for us. I've been reading uh, some stuff about, in, uh, about Genesis and the creation of the world. And I don't know if you know this, but there are many other creation epics that are quite common. You can go read them for yourself. The Assyrians had a, a creation and a flood story. The Babylonians, ancient Babylonians, had a creation and a flood story. There was also a Sumerian version. And so the one, the Assyrian version was called the Gilgamesh story. It's a story of Gilgamesh. Um, the, the Babylonian story is called Atrahasis. You can go and read these. In, 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 uh, and they all have common things. They all speak about God creating the world in different ways. They all speak about a flood where the judgment came on the world. But they have, it's very interesting because they all have very different motivations. In the Gilgamesh story, basically the gods say, not God, but the gods, they say there are too many people on the earth, and so what we're going to do is we're going to send a flood to destroy people because we want to control the population. That's what the Gilgamesh epic says. 
the Christian worldview is that God always starts out of love. He creates the world out of love. He sends Jesus out of love. He brings judgment only because his love and his holiness need to be satisfied. It's a very, very different, different um, worldview when we talk about the Bible. And so when we think about reconciliation in verse 19 and 20, there is the initiative that is taken right at the beginning because God loves us. And because God loves us, he has sent Jesus to become a person and the fullness of God in every way so that he can represent us fully to God in eternity. And that's why reconciliation is possible. So it all starts with God. Secondly, it's something that has already been accomplished. You don't have to strive to be reconciled with God. Peace has been made for you already. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I acknowledge what you have done. And if you don't know Christ here this morning, I want, to, I want to pray with you that you would leave knowing Jesus. Peace has already been made for you with, through the work of Christ. And the, the, the difference between a Christian teaching and all other pagan ideas, pagan ideas insist that the one who needs to be reconciled must do the reconciling himself. That's why pagans offer up sacrifices in temples because they are saying, I'm taking this sacrifice and I'm doing the work to appease the gods that I have, I have uh, offended. That's what pagan sacrifice is. The Christian worldview teaching is that Christ, God himself, has initiated in the person of Jesus and God himself has become the sacrifice for us. We don't need to sacrifice anything else anymore. Christ is the fullness of that. He's done all that is needed and all we need to do is say, Jesus, I believe and we are reconciled to God. That is it. Very different. Jesus has done it all for us. Now, my friends, if we don't believe that, we do not have anything to say to anyone. We do not have any gospel to preach. We do not have any good news to preach to anyone unless we believe that, unless we know that. And thirdly, I want to say, reconciliation is achieved at the cross. It is achieved at the cross. Some people stumble over this. They don't like blood. <laughs> There's too much blood in Christianity, they say. All the stuff, blood sacrifices, the blood of Christ, too much blood. Don't like that. I'm squeamish about blood. My friends, the only message that you and I have is that Jesus' blood is enough. It is about blood. It is about what was achieved through the blood of Christ on the cross. Paul says this, I preach Christ and Him crucified. And we see, if you look, Billy Graham has just passed away in the last couple of weeks, a great, great evangelist. What was his message? Jesus is enough. The blood of Christ is enough. Put your trust in the blood of Christ and what he's bought for you. Any great revival in church history, if you're going to have a look at it, you see people have rediscovered the cross. They've rediscovered the blood of Christ. They've, they've rediscovered what it means for them, and it's liberated them. We have only one message. It is the cross. I, love, I read reading Spurgeon this week. Um, he said this, Some may continually preach Christ as an example. How many of you have been in, a, in a churches like that? Where all they preach is Jesus is the great example, and you must live like Jesus. And you just feel exhausted. You feel, I can never do that. It's not possible. Legalism. Anyone know that? Some preach Christ as an example. Others perpetually discourse on his coming to glory. Oh, and some people focus on the glory of Jesus. We want your glory, worship, prayer, all that stuff. That's what we want. We want the glory. 
And Spurgeon says, we also preach both of these, but mainly we preach Christ crucified. Come on. It's good to preach about the glory that is coming. It's good to preach about Jesus and the example of how he helps in our life. But most of all, we preach the cross. We preach the blood. We preach Jesus has done all. Your sins are forgiven and he loves you. That's what we preach, most of all. Come on now. This is good news. Because if it's not, then you've got to just get on the treadmill and do your best to please God. You want to live like that? Go ahead, my friends. It's exhausting. It's, it just robs the energy out of you. You can never know that you've done enough. Live by the Spirit. Live with this voice guiding you. Put all your energy into hearing what He has for you. And say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. Amen? And so I put it to you. The Bible also says that the powers, the fallen angels, the demons, they know that their time is up. And I put it to you that they'll do anything they can do in your life to distract you from what Jesus has done for you on the cross. They will. They'll say, oh, you don't really need that. What you really need is to fast five times this week, and that'll bring you close to God. What you really need is to be more spiritual. What you really need is to get some psychological help. What you really need is a, a particular prayer course that is going to really get you to connect with God. And some of those things are necessary. I'm not poo-pooing them. I am saying this, that Jesus is enough. Where's your focus? Where's my focus? Is it on the cross? Is it on the blood of Jesus? Surely, Paul is saying, the Colossians, you've taken your focus off Christ and you've put it onto other ministries. What you really need is the other ministries. How often doesn't the church do that? I've been leading church for a long time. Every 10 years, there's some new guy that everyone raves about. Always some new Christian celebrity, some pre preacher with a slightly different message. And everyone gets distracted and they rush after that guy or that church or that movement. Christ is enough. Lastly, let me finish where I started. Reconciliation in Christ, through Christ, takes in all things. Paul puts before the church that Jesus is sufficient in every way for everything. I put it to you again this morning. There's nothing outside the scope of God's reconciliation in Christ. All of us who put our faith in Him are reconciled through the blood of Christ. And this really is a death knell to syncretism, which is one of the other most popular heresies that we have in our, in our modern culture, that um, all faiths are basically the same thing. They just speak in different ways. That's syncretism. That's not, that's not what the Bible teaches because we have to come to this point where um, Christians have confessed. They're bound to confess. There's only one way that God has reconciled people to himself. It's not through Buddha. It's through Jesus. You can't, you can't escape it. If you believe the Bible, that's what it says. So there's only one way that God has reconciled to himself all things, in the person of Jesus. Not through karma. Not through any of those things, but through Jesus. And so we are bound as Christians to say, actually, there is one way to the Father through Jesus. Doesn't mean we stop loving people. No, we love people passionately with all of our hearts. As kindly as we can, we point them to the all-sufficient Savior, the most beautiful one, Jesus. So I'd like to leave you with these thoughts. This last slide, Josh. Yes, I'm, what does this mean for you and me? 
Well, perhaps you have something in your life where you face fear on a daily basis. Perhaps you're scared in some area of your life. Let these scriptures speak to you. Isaiah, so, I, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the promise of God to you in Isaiah 41. What about Psalm 56? David, when I'm afraid, he acknowledges he times when he gets afraid. I put my trust in you. Amen? Not I put my trust in my, psycho, my, my psychoanalyst. Not I put my trust in Jenny Seinfeld's comedy. And I, I love Jerry Seinfeld, and he says some very great things. It makes me laugh. But I don't put my trust there. I put my trust in you, Jesus, in you, Father, with all of my heart. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything. That's a, that, just dwell on that for one moment. Where are you anxious in your life? What are you really fearful about? Jesus says, don't be anxious, Paul says to the Philippian church, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, whatever you're facing right now, by prayer, saying, God, I need you, by petition, asking him, with thanksgiving, with joy in your heart, present, present your request to God and the amazing promise, the peace of God. Anyone here know the peace of God? Amen. It surpasses and transcends all understanding, that overwhelming peace that you just know. How many of you woken up in the middle of the night at two, as I often do when I'm struggling with something or stressed? I always wake up at two o'clock in the morning, and, so, and then I pray, and I, I trust God, and the peace of God overwhelms you. Do you know that feeling? That's the promise of God to you. It guards your heart. It will guard your mind in Christ Jesus. And what is Jesus' promise to John? Uh, Peace is what I leave with you. It's my own peace that I give you. I do not give it as the world does. Do not be worried. Do not be upset. Do not be afraid. Jesus has promised to you this morning, to me. Do not be worried. Do not be upset. Do not be afraid. I've overcome the world. Do you not see it? Will you not accept it for your life? And lastly, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Jesus has reconciled all things to himself in Christ. Every demon will bow. Those that do not acknowledge him right now will one day acknowledge him. He is the king. He is the Lord. Through him, there's only one way to the Father, and that's through him. He is the most beautiful one. He is the Lord of all creation. What do you have to fear? Nothing. I want to... I want to just ask you, I'm going to hand over to Ed, we're going to break bread as a church family, but just take a moment, just, uh, and, if, and if there's nothing, that's okay, but, but just take a moment and just say, Lord, if there's an area in your life that you are struggling to trust Him in right now, if you're fearful about anything, just lay it on the altar. When you break bread this morning, say, Jesus, for this thing, I'm trusting for freedom in my life. Will you help me to trust you in this area of fear? this area of anxiety, this area where I don't see the future clearly. Help me to trust you by faith right now, this morning. Amen? So we're going to take a moment. I'm not going to take long. Just prayerfully ask God to show you and bring that thing before Him and then Ed is going to lead us as we break bread together.